thank you, Renee. We'll let our children be dismissed at this time. So. Well, we only have a few weeks left in this series on the church, and then we will be uh, back into the book of Romans, uh, picking up where we left off in chapter 5. But in these next few weeks, there's a, a few passages we want to tie together, but also this area of, uh, of the ordinances of the church. While we're talking about the, the, the body of the church, something that we share together and uh, usually only talk about uh, occasionally, and then in passing is the ordinances of, of baptism and communion. So I want to use this day to, to talk about those ordinances in relation to our, our body life. So uh, first of all, what, what is an ordinance? If you think of the word ordinance in uh, our culture, it usually has something to do with a regulation or a law, or, um, but it has a particular meaning when it's applied to church life. Um, it has replaced what used to be called the sacrament. In fact, there's a lot of people who still use the word sacrament for, say, the Lord's Supper, partaking of the sacraments. But um, that word has... Uh, uh, been used less and less because of its, uh, its tie-in with uh, something that gives grace. There, there used to be the view in, in the church, especially before the Reformation, that by partaking of the sacraments, you, you got grace. You partook of uh, the communion, and each time you, it was a means of grace. And so each of the ordinances of the church, and there were many, like christening, for instance, that was a way of conferring grace on a person. And uh, as the Reformation came about, they realized, well, there's only one means of grace, and that's through Christ on the cross. Um, so that the view of the sacraments has changed over time to call them something like the, the ordinances, uh, here's a definition of an ordinance sin. Uh, this comes from a friend of mine who did his doctoral dissertation on ordinances, and this is the definition he ended up with in that, that research, and I, I think it's pretty good. It's a, a physical act which is ceremonial in nature and symbolically represents a spiritual truth with an expectation of perpetuation. That's a long kind of complicated but it has to be um, all inclusive include all the parts of it and be concise as it can be just look at it a bit by bit here it's a physical act so um, let, let's take uh, communion the Lord's Supper for example because we're having communion today uh, we are physically going to partake of this we don't just set it up here and look at it or we don't just think about it, we actually partake of it. It's a physical act, right? We, we partake in a physical act. But it's ceremonial in nature. That is, uh, we don't just set out some bread in the foyer and, and you take some if you, when you come in if you'd like to or eat as much as you want. Or th there's a ceremony involved with it, ceremonial in nature. As we 
uh, pass the, the plate around as we partake of it together, there's a ceremony involved in it. So it's a physical act that is ceremonial in nature. But the reason for partaking of it is not to, uh, to feed us. It is to serve as a, a spiritual, symbolical reminder to us. So this, the bread and the cup symbolically represent something. They, they symbolize a spiritual truth. The bread is the body of Christ given for us. The, the cup represents, symbolizes the blood of Christ shed for us. So it's a physical act which we do in a ceremonial way which has uh, which symbolically represents a spiritual truth and an ordinance to be an ordinance has the expectation of perpetuation by that David uh, Plaster meant that there was some kind of a, a command or um, uh, at least principle given in the New Testament from Christ that he expected the church to continue doing this and we see this in both the baptism and communion there's, there's an expectation to continue doing it so uh, an ordinance needs to fit all those parts of a definition we believe that there are two uh, ordinances in the church most, um, most churches believe that there are two ordinances, baptism and communion. There are some who believe there are a number of them, and, and for different reasons, but most Protestant churches, and surely all evangelical churches, recognize baptism and communion or the Lord's Supper. So let's look at those two. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13 was where we'll start. You'll notice that we have looked at this particular verse. Uh, I think this is a third or fourth time in this series, and we'll be in it again in uh, in a couple more weeks in more detail in First Corinthians 12. But that just shows you how central this this passage is to understanding what a church is all about, uh, because we are made one in this way. First Corinthians 12, verse 12 and 13. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So we were all baptized into one body. And remember that the word baptized means to place into, to immerse, to place into. We were placed into the body of Christ at the time of salvation. When the moment you became a believer, you were placed into the body of Christ. That's called spiritual baptism. You don't do anything to make that happen. It's something spiritual that happens to you. The Holy Spirit baptizes you into the places you into the, the worldwide everlasting body of Christ. Well, there in this passage, what we see is that there is a spiritual body of Christ, the one, the invisible body that you don't see that you're baptized into, but there's also the physical body of Christ. And Paul is purposely interweaving those two truths in 1 Corinthians 12 to show us that, that really they're inseparable. 
if you are part of the the body of the spiritual body of Christ you've been placed into the body of Christ then you belong to other believers and wherever you congregate together you come together to to be the church that you are united to that group you are a member that's why he talks about members of the body there so we're we're placed into the body of Christ and baptism we are when we a person is physically baptized uh, part of what's going on there is a symbol of, of what has happened spiritually being placed into the body of Christ. Um, secondly, look at Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> verses 1 through 4. Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Romans 6, I believe, is talking about what 1 Corinthians 12 uh, taught us, that at the moment of salvation, we are baptized, placed into the body of Christ. Picture somebody being baptized. Surely you've seen someone go into the waters of baptism. Well, that's a physical act they're going into. And it, in, in a sense, what it represents is somebody being placed into the body of Christ. It's, that's the spiritual truth behind that. But what Paul is saying here is that that uh, baptism, that spiritual baptism, also unites us to Christ in his death and resurrection. And even, even the physical act then of being placed into the water and being brought back out of it is, is a good symbol of the spiritual truth here that we were made dead to self, buried in baptism, being dead to self, crucified with Christ, but raised again into newness of life, that we should walk as new people and no longer live for ourselves, but to live for Him. And so... Baptism reminds us of that spiritual truth as well. The reason that we were placed into the body of Christ is because of the death and resurrection of Christ with which we identify. So those two things are joined. And then there's one more uh, passage that gives us some symbolism in this, and that is Matthew 28. In our uh, familiar passage of the Great Commission, starting at verse 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the only baptismal formula that we are given in the New Testament. We, we recognize the other symbolisms involved, but as far as a formula of being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you notice whenever we have a baptism and someone is baptized, um, either Pastor Jeremy say, based upon your profession of faith in Christ, because that's what really has saved them, not the baptism, right? That's their profession of faith. Then I baptize you in the, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, why say that? Because that's in keeping with what Jesus said, to baptize them in the, the triune name of God. Baptize them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Because all three persons of the Godhead are active in our salvation as uh, I usually talk about that every time we have a baptism how we are dependent on the activity of each person the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit without which none of us could be saved. And so we, we honor our triune God. This would have been especially meaningful for Jews. Imagine at this time now, if you were, uh, if you were there in Acts chapter 2, when, um, at, on the day of Pentecost, and Peter is preaching this sermon, and, and people are going to be baptized... And now he, he baptizes them, which was not a strange thing for them. They understood baptism. John baptized, right? E even the Jews baptized Gentile pagans who wanted to be God-fearers. The Jews would baptize them. They would just immerse them. But this is different now because for the first time, people are being baptized in the name of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that is a monotheistic Jew, who, an Orthodox Jew who repeated the great Shema every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. A Jew who said that every day, the Lord our God is one, was now going to be baptized into the name of the Father and baptized into the name of the Son and baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit a three-in-one God and what a departure that was and so you can see why the Christians who were baptized in, with this formula were persecuted by the Jews because they didn't see it as just an extension of Judaism but a departure from Judaism now to be sure, we understand our God to be, we, we worship a monotheist God. There's one God, but he is in three persons. It's that new understanding of who God is in three persons that was the, the radical departure for the, these people of the early church. And even to this day, we proclaim that, perhaps not realizing the great significance of it, but, but we ought to remember this. It's our triune God in whose name we are being baptized. It is in obedience to Christ. Uh, as we've already seen, 
Jesus says in verse 18, all authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples and baptize them. That's a, that's a command to baptize converts as they are be, as they become disciples you baptize them because there's this command to do that there is also implicit in the command to do it that people will obey that command and be baptized but uh, also go to Acts chapter 2 we'll, we'll see it from the other side as well there's a command for the apostles to baptize others and there's also the command to be baptized Acts chapter 2 Acts 2, starting at verse 36. Uh, this is uh, how Peter is concluding his sermon that day of Pentecost. And it says, uh, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. And, and let us remember that it was not just those Jews who were responsible. Nor was it just those Roman soldiers who crucified the Lord of glory. It was you and it was me who crucified him. It's as if we were at the very foot of the cross throwing up curses and accusations against them and cheering on the Roman soldiers as they drove the nails because that's what our sin did. We, we were, are as guilty as these people that, Jesus, that uh, Peter was talking to whom you crucified. God has named him both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart as we should be when we, we realize he died for us too. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit so the first thing to do is, is to repent and it may remember about this time last year we were talking about the, the word repent and believe and how they are uh, often interchangeable because if someone truly repents it's because they believe and if they truly believe they will repent kind of an idea but truly understanding who Jesus is, but following up that quickly with, and be baptized. Be baptized. Look at verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. It was both the believing and the being baptized by which they were added to the church. Now, the believing, coming to faith in Christ, is all that is required for salvation, becoming part of the universal church, right? Now, we don't have to be baptized to become part of 
the body of Christ. But they were baptized and became part of the local church there. Um, based upon their profession of faith, they were, they were baptized. And so we see throughout the, the early church uh, in the book of Acts, every time someone comes to faith in Christ, they are baptized. And usually right away, as soon as they can be. In fact, in one case, it was a member of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and they're going down the road, and um, Philip explains the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, and, and he stops his chariot and says, look, there's some water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip says, yeah, let's do it. So they, they went to the mud puddle or whatever it was, pond, they, and he baptized them. Um, and what we see in the early church is it was as soon as someone came, became a convert, they were baptized. And th that has led the uh, uh, commentator F.F. F. Bruce, who has written the classic commenta uh, commentary on the book of Acts, to say this. The New Testament never entertains the idea of a non-baptized believer. That is... It would be totally foreign to their thinking in the New Testament that you would have a believer who was not baptized. Who just said, well, yeah, I want to believe, but uh, that baptism thing is not for me. I'm, I'm going to wait till I'm ready, and maybe one day. It was because it was, it was part of identifying with Christ. Not that it made you a believer, but it was a demonstration of the spiritual truth that had happened. And a person was, was glad to do that and to follow up in obedience to follow the Lord. So we have baptism, which is a physical act. It's ceremonial in nature, the, the way we do a baptism. It symbolically represents a spiritual truth, and we talked about what it, the symbolism is of it. And there's an <clears throat> expectation that we'll keep doing it, an expectation of perpetuation do this well how about communion or the Lord's Supper uh, we sometimes call it communion kind of a shorthand term, term for it because uh, 1 Corinthians 10 16 says the, the communion uh, uh, the partaking of the, the bread of Christ is not this a communion of his body and the partaking of the cup is not this a communion of his blood uh, <clears throat> That's also called the Lord's Supper, in which the Lord took the, the last supper and turned it into the Lord's Supper. And we identify it with that. So let's look at a few passages about communion. First of all, starting with Matthew 26, how the Lord initiated the Lord's Supper or communion. Matthew 26, 26. Matthew 26, starting at verse 26. And as they were eating, well, back in verse 17, it says, Now on the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want for us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? 
And then they prepare the Passover. So in verse 26, when he says they're eating, that's the meal that is being spoken of. While they're eating the Passover, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, just several things to note here that are important in this passage. This is, was initiated by Christ purposefully on Passover. It had to be at this time because Christ was going to be the sacrificial lamb for us. In fact, later on, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 that Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. And that's why it's tied in with Passover. All the Passovers before anticipated this Passover. And that's why this is the last supper. It's the last Passover that would have any relevance from then on, it became the Lord's Supper that would have relevance. Purposely initiated at Passover because Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. It points to the sacrifice of Christ for substitutionary atonement. And as Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. This really answers back to John chapter 6 when, when Jesus was telling them um, some a very hard sayings. Uh, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. You, you must partake of me that way. And, and many people departed from him then saying, we, we don't get this. And now he's making clear what that means. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, partaking of his death to understand that he is dying for us and to commemorate, remember him in that. So, this, verse 28 especially, this is my blood of the, uh, this is the blood of the covenant which is shed for many for the taking away the remission of sins. So it's uh, a sacrifice. He's the, the sacrificial lamb. Uh, as John said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's a sacrificial lamb, so it's a sacrifice, but it's a substitutionary. That is, he is doing it for us. It's shed for many for the remission of sin. For, for the behalf, on the behalf of many, for this purpose, uh, the for there is ice, into or unto, taking away their sin. A sacrificial, substitutionary atonement. He sacrifices life in our place, substitute to make us one with God. And so when we, we partake of communion, we are remembering that even though that we are guilty of his crucifixion. He takes away our sin by it. This also points to a future kingdom and meal. Look at verse uh, 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day that I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
for the disciples especially who would have thought this is this is the end I mean he's talking about death he's saying I'm going to Jerusalem they're going to crucify me and they're thinking it's all going to come to an end he's reminding them this is not the end this is this is uh, just the beginning of something new this is the beginning of the new covenant and there's going to be a future kingdom I'm, I'm not going to partake of this with you again until my kingdom and so it's a reminder that uh, he has much more in store not only is he going to be resurrected but there will be a future kingdom and a meal that, that we will all share together which we read about in Revelation 19 uh, and fourthly this notice this uh, sacrifice includes both the body and the blood of Christ uh, verse 26 take eat this is my body um, and he gave him the cup and said this is the, the blood which is shed for many for the remission of sins it's both the body and the blood it's not just that Jesus could have been uh, strangled to death or something his, his death had to be a bloody death um, as Leviticus and Hebrews uh, reminds us that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin his death was a, a bloody death it's not that his blood was somehow mystical or magical it was that he shed his blood for us and God counted that in our place well how about our participation in communion well first of all believers are called to participate we see that even in the initiation of um, the communion service as he broke the bread in verse 26 and he gave it to them and said take and uh, eat this is my body and the same thing with the cup take this and, and drink this so he's inviting those apostles to partake with him and we see it's not only not only for them and for this one time but there's an expectation of perpetuation or that that we as a church would continue as well 1 Corinthians 11 verses uh, starting at verse 23 1 Corinthians 11 23 and this is a passage that we most often use as we come to a communion service and Paul writes for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you so this is a commandment or direction that Paul received from Christ that he was to pass on to the churches for them to do and um, all the way down till he comes in his kingdom for I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of what of me I know that often as we think about the death of Christ we think about the communion we think about perhaps the benefits that, that we get from it we 
we get eternal life because he gave his self in death for us. And we, we think about the transaction. We may think about the awful moment of crucifixion and those several hours of darkness that came upon the earth as, as God poured out his wrath on his son. But Jesus doesn't say, think, do this in remembering what you get. But do this in remembrance of me. You know, sometimes we can, we can think so much about we are grateful for a gift and think about the gift that we forget the giver, the love of the giver who gave it to us. And God wants us to do this. When you have communion, do this, he says, in remembrance of me. Not just what I did. Yes, that's important, but of me personally. The same thing with the cup. In, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, another indication, by the way, that they were, con they were to continue doing it, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death <laughs> until he comes. And again, a reminder that there's a future kingdom. He is coming back. So, believers are called to participate. And we need to know something about how to participate. If you back up a little bit in the same chapter to verse 20. We are to participate in unity of the body. Participate keeping the unity of who we are, the body of Christ, in mind. Verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, it was supposed to be for that, but, but Paul is saying they have uh, disrupted it so much by their, their actions that it's, you could hardly call it that anymore by what they're doing. Here's his reason why. Verse 21. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and the other is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you, not, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. You see... The early church also uh, incorporated what they called um, a love feast, a meal, with the partaking of the communion bread and cup. And so they come together for this meal, and evidently what was happening was the people who could get off work early, the, the landowners, the masters, the shop owners, those, those kind of people could come early, and... And they would eat up all the food and drink up all the wine. They'd have a jolly old time fellowshipping together. And then those people who, who had little and were poor and had to work till late and came late, there was hardly anything left. And how is that sharing as a church body? And uh, Paul's saying, do, do you despise the church? 
by doing that. You despise the idea of what the church is. It's a, a unity, a, a body. Now, one of the ways that the church got past this problem is they quit having the meal and eventually just um, narrowed it down to only the bread and the cup. But originally, I believe they were supposed to have a meal with it, the love feast, as uh, Jude talks about. These are spots in your feast of love and, and so forth. But I think that got dropped probably within the first century or so of the church. Um, instead of doing it right, they just didn't do it. Uh, then look ahead to verse 33 and 34. In this passage, uh, we have 20 through 22, talk about the, the problem of uh, partaking of the bread and wine before other people come. Then he gets back to that at the end of the passage, starting at uh, verse 33. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. So they, there was a problem there, this uh, overarching problem of not understanding the unity of the body and love for one another. And so that's what Paul is addressing in the midst of giving them some advice instruction about partaking of the bread and cup so uh, he says in verses 23 through 26 you are to do this in remembrance of Jesus and we've, we've already looked at that so he says uh, think about each other don't despise the, the church do it in remembrance of Jesus and also do it in a worthy manner verse 27 Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. For when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Now, several things to think about here and what he means by in a worthy manner. Um, verse 27, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Um, most translations say in an unworthy manner. There's one translation that says unworthily. And that's unfortunate translation because it would lead you to think there's a way that you can be worthy of partaking of it. And that's not the idea. None of us are ever worthy of the body and the blood of the Lord, are we? But it's talking about the manner in which we partake of it. The, the manner in which we partake of it should be in keeping with uh, who Christ is and what he has done. Um, it's a worthy manner. He who does not partake of it in a worthy manner, Paul says, is guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Um, think about someone who would take the American flag and 
throw it on the ground and stomp on it. Trampling on the, our flag. We would look unkindly on that. But the flag is just a piece of cloth with a, with a design sewn into it. Red, white, and blue, some stars. It's just a piece of cloth, right? So why would we get so upset? It's because of what it represents, right? It's the flag of our nation. It's, it's the flag people died for. It, it means something to us. Um, we take pride in that. And for someone to trample on our flag, I think rightfully riles us because of what it represents. It's just cloth, but it's what it represents. So it is with this bread and cup. This, this, this bit of bread and this bit of juice are not something special as this bread and juice, right? But it's what it represents that is so important. And so to treat it in an unworthy manner, to treat it lightly, uh, is, is as if you were trampling it underfoot. And that, that's what Paul is getting at here, to, to look at it lightly, to not discern what it's really about. And so he says in verse 28, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Whenever we come to communion, each of us should do some self-soul searching. First of all, do I really belong to Christ? Do I believe that his body was given, his blood was shed for my sin? If I do, then as I partake of this, I'm remembering him. that He did that for me and how precious Christ is to me. So examine yourself, but also... To, to discern the body of the Lord. And I think he means something special by that. Uh, verse 29. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, this may mean the body that was given, uh, Christ's physical body, but I think more likely it means the body of the Lord as far as the church. Because remember how Paul started this section? Or when you come together and you, you uh, are not in unity, one eats and gets drunk and others have nothing, you despise the church, which is the body of Christ. That's been the theme before this section and at the end of this section. So in between, that's the theme that Paul is getting at. Plus, when in other verses in 26, um, he talks about uh, the, the bread and the cup. In 27, he talks about the bread and the cup and the, the body and the blood. In verse 28, he talks about the, the bread and the cup. But only when he gets to verse 29 does he separate only the body. There, he's not talking about the, the blood, but the body. And I think by the body there, he means us, the body of Christ. The not discerning, not judging rightly that we are a body. And, and uh, fracturing the body by not treating each other with love. Now, 
certainly it's all founded on the fact that his body was given his Christ's body was given but he's using this also in a way to, rem- to remind us we were brought baptized into one body we are one body so remember that as you come together is what he's saying and finally um, baptism and communion serve the church as boundary markers now this was uh, more clearly and neatly done in the early church where you in any given locality you only had one church and so baptism was the ordinance for people coming into the church as people were being saved then they would be baptized and become members of the church so that was the boundary marker of getting into the church so uh, and then communion was a boundary marker an indicator of continuing on in the church because as they would come together uh, and worship uh, however often they partook of this the Lord's Supper it seems at the beginning it was every day and then probably for a while it was every week and some churches still practice that every week um, we, we happen to do it once a month we're not given a specific time limit span to do it but he says uh, uh, as often as you do this but those who partake of it we are a, a uh, confessing congregation saying we are united because of this because of of the body and blood of Christ we are one if someone gets excluded from that say because of gross sin for which they are unrepentant and they are we say okay you're no longer part of this body then they no longer are partaking of communion which shows that they are no longer um, part of the church doesn't mean they're no longer a a believer we're we're just not sure they're they're set outside the church who knows the Lord does that they might repent so these ordinances act in a sense as uh, boundary markers that's not so clear today because we have so many different churches and you might have been baptized seven years ago in this church in Georgia or something and so but we still um, we recognize that that is something that's important after a person is converted and and for us if someone is here and converted we would like for them to be baptized as soon as they they can uh, for being a member um, and, and then communion we want those who are believers in Christ and have a relationship with him and with the, each other to join together in this um, in this, this common partaking of the bread and cup and with that in mind I'm going to ask those who are going to be serving communion to come forward now as we, we prepare our hearts to partake of this <coughs> as we prepare our hearts to um, partake of this listen to these words again from 1 Corinthians 11 
For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. If you can picture in your mind the scene of the Passover and Jesus from that meal taking bread and giving it to them, saying, take this. And that's what we're doing now as we pass this bread. We are part of that scene. We are, we're part of that company of believers. And so now we're going to take bread. Gentlemen, if you will pass the bread. Give me this, I'll fill that. It's okay.
Greg, would you please offer a word of thanks for the body that was given? given thanks he broke it and said take eat this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me in the same manner also he took the cup after supper and now we are we're going to take the cup as you receive it, focus on who Christ is. Do, do this in remembrance of him.
Lord, how we thank you for such a gracious gift as this that we are commemorating, that you, the Lord of glory, would give your blood for us, that you would shed your blood for sinful people like we are. And we thank you that by your grace it is applied and we are made new and clean and we can, we can honor you in this as we, we look to you as our only God and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we look forward to that day in which he comes. Let's stand together for dismissal and pass your cups to the side. Lord, we thank you for this good day together in you. And we do indeed look forward to the day in which you will come and uh, for your kingdom and for your people. And we just commit ourselves and ask that you would enable us by the power of your spirit to live for you each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank <laughs> you.